Good morning, brothers and sisters. What a blessing it is that we may be gathered together this morning for the worship of our Lord. We extend a warm welcome to everyone who has joined us in church this morning for worship, and we also extend a special welcome to all visitors who have joined us this morning here in church or are with us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May God be praised and glorified by our worship. Consistory has the following announcement. There will be a coffee social after this morning's worship service to farewell the Paul family as they prepare to return to the mission field. Please join us in the fellowship hall after the service. This morning, the worship service will be led by Reverend B. Scoof, Minister of the Chilliwack Canadian Reformed Church, and we welcome him to our church this morning. Before we commence the worship service, let us sing together hymn 45, verse 1 and 3. sisters greetings also from your brothers and sisters in Chilliwack Canadian Reformed Church if you are able to please now rise for worship we just sang about how every creature is called to rise and bring the highest honor to our King uh, our God and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and so we are rising to worship our great God. And because our God is so great, we begin our worship service with our confession of trust in the Lord. Our confession is from Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And God also greets us graciously into his presence this morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And let us now also continue singing praises to the Lord our God. We will begin our worship by singing from Psalm 96 verses 1, 5 and 7. Psalm 96 verses 1, 5 and 7. 
Our Lord God has chosen us as his people. And as his people, he calls us to serve and glorify him in our lives. And he has given us his law to teach us how we are called to worship him and to serve him all of our days. And so we will remind ourselves of the law of the Lord our God as we do each and every Sunday. This morning we hear God's law from Exodus chapter 20. And then afterwards, we will sing in response the third verse of Psalm 96. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And our Lord Jesus Christ summarized God's law when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to expand on this on this second part of God's law, when he said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so let's now sing of this as we sing from Psalm 96. Verse 3.
And let's also now come before the Lord in our prayer of confession of sins. Lord, our God and Father in heaven, you have commanded us to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And the reason you have commanded this is because you are truly the only God. All the gods of the other nations are merely human creations, idols, who can do nothing. They cannot see or hear and they cannot help. And so we are richly blessed that we are not serving idols right now. Whether some idols made of blocks of stone or wood. Or whether perhaps, like many today, making ourselves into our own gods. But you have revealed yourself to us. You have sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts. And you have given us your word to teach us about you and all that you have done. And so we are called to, to live our lives out of a love for you. Not for ourselves or any other so-called gods. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you will continue to bless us in our lives. That, that we will live them for your honor and glory. That we will kneel before you in adoration and worship, not just here on, on Sundays, but also as we go about our regular work. And as we consider this task to which you have called us, we, our Lord, have to also come before you in, in sorrow and in repentance for our sins. For this past week, we have not lived our life for you alone, and everything that we have done has not been out of love for you. Far too often, we have sinned, and we have lived for our own honor and glory, and we've put ourselves ahead of others and, and ahead of you. Far too often, Lord, we have not been separated from this world as we have followed your commandments, but we have followed the ways of this world, doing what the world does, watching the same thing, godless movies that they watch, listening to the same blasphemous things that they listen to. We have often been greedy and selfish. We have not treated our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our parents with the respect and, and honor and sacrificial love that we are called to. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We have not been slow to anger when others have hurt us, nor have we borne with them in love. And these, Lord, are just some of the sins that we have committed. As we have often chosen to go our own way. And so, Lord, we pray that in your mercy you reveal to each one of us our own sins. For we are often blind to them and often struggle to see how it is we have sinned in our life. And we go about without even noticing these sins. And so will you reveal our sins to us by your Holy Spirit? And will you help us to, as we now confess all these sins to you, will you work true sorrow and repentance in our hearts? But we thank you that, that along with this sorrow over our sins, we may also have a great joy and a delight. Because we know that all of these sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. For you so loved the world that you sent your one and only Son. 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so though we have sinned this past week, we also believe in Jesus Christ and confess that he is our Savior. And so we can know that our, in Jesus' name all of our sins are forgiven. And so we pray, Lord, that you will bless us also as we remember this gospel again this morning from your word. Will you bless us to hear the, the scriptures, to learn from the life and the actions and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ more about our great salvation through Christ. And to work in our hearts as we listen by your Holy Spirit to, to hear and especially to, to understand your word and how it applies to each one of our lives. This then we all pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, our scripture reading and our text is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. It's the first 18 verses of John, chapter 5. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John 5. So our text is the... uh, the story, the account of Jesus healing a man at the, at the pool of Bethesda. So John chapter 5, and we'll read the first 18 verses. Listen now to the holy word of the Lord our God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been already there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God.
That psalm is a warning of the judgment of God that is coming on all those who do not put their faith in Him. And we will see that also explained in our sermon. And after the sermon, we will sing of the blessing upon those who do put their faith in God from Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you suffered over the course of your life? Have you been sick? That is, of course, a silly question, because all of us at some point in time will suffer various sicknesses, sorrows, hardships of many kinds. And when you have suffered these things, have you ever asked yourself, is my suffering because of my sin? That might seem like an insensitive question. We suffer things that seem impossible to be because of us. We suffer the loss of a loved one or we get very sick or family members, those we love, become very sick. Not that long ago, we can remember when the whole church and the whole country and the whole world was suffering. And then it seems an even stranger question. If we're all suffering, How can it be because of our sin? But actually, the Bible has quite a number of texts that link suffering and sickness with sin. James 5 verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. It's interesting that he doesn't say when you confess your sins to each other, you'll be forgiven. Because that's actually God's job. You're forgiven when you confess your sins before God and your sins are washed away in the blood of Christ. But James says, when you confess your sins to each other, you will be healed. In other words, there's a link between suffering, between difficulties that you have in this life, perhaps relationship difficulties, and sin. We can suffer sometimes depression and and anxiety because of the shame of unconfessed sin. People have also been physically ill because of sin. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible says also that suffering is not necessarily because of sin. There are many people in the scriptures who, for example, have have suffered because of the name of Christ. And so they are actually suffering because of their faithfulness. The Bible also says that sometimes God brings suffering upon us to, to strengthen us because we need the spiritual growth. James 5 links sickness and sin. But James 1 talks about how when you suffer, you should consider it joy because you develop perseverance. So suffering is not always because of sin, but sometimes it is. And that's what our text reveals this morning. And so I've taken our theme from the word of Jesus to the man who he healed. Stop sinning, let something worse happen to you. And we'll see Jesus' healing and what it means and then also his warning to the man and what it means. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in a place, a pool called Bethesda, which means house of outpouring. 
And in Bethesda, there were, in those days, in Jesus' day, there were two pools there, and they were covered over by, by five porches so that you could swim without the sun beating down on you. And you can actually find evidence of these pools still there today if you go there. And Jesus, in, these, in one of these pools, finds a man who has been suffering for 38 years. And we're told the length of his suffering to teach us that, that G, the disease was not a, a fake disease. And, and so when Jesus eventually heals him, we, we see how great Jesus' healing power is. But Jesus also has another reason for choosing this man from all the disabled men and women who are there, as we'll see. It's sometimes claimed that when Jesus heals you, you must first have faith. And we hear that still today sometimes. In, in various preachings, in various churches. People say, Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to help you. But you first have to invite him into your heart. He, he can't help you until you first ask him. And sometimes that is how it, it happened in the New Testament. There were people who were desperately calling to Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus is the classic example. He wouldn't stop shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so people take from that, they say, see, Jesus will heal any of your problems if only you have enough faith to ask him loudly and long enough. But that's not true of our text. Jesus picks this man out of a whole group of sick and invalid people who are there. So far as we know, he doesn't heal any of the others. In his wisdom, God sometimes chooses to leave people in their suffering. People who no doubt had been crying to God, praying to God for, for healing and for deliverance. Why does God do this? We don't know. Although, as James 1 teaches us, it is sometimes to teach us patience and perseverance. Whereas this man is not particularly remarkable. He doesn't express any knowledge of Jesus as a healer, or he doesn't appear to show any faith that Jesus can actually heal him. Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be well? And his answer is yes, but he, he thinks very small. He holds to the superstition that perhaps your Bible has in a footnote that used to be in, in or that in some Bibles is in verse 4 of our text. There's a superstition that an angel would come and stir up the, the water, and when the, that would happen, the first person into the water would be healed. And so what he asks from Jesus when Jesus says, do you want to be well, is he says, Jesus, please, can you lift me up and help me get into the pool first so I can be well? So he's not asking Jesus for healing. He's not inviting Jesus into his life or anything like that. And Calvin remarks at this point that, that this man is doing what we all do sometimes. We, we limit God to small things because that's all that we know to do. So Jesus, this man asks Jesus for help lifting him into the pool. What a waste of, of Jesus' almighty healing power that request is. And yet we often sometimes do the same things. We, we have small ideas for how we need God's help. Our text reminds us that we are called to have great faith, to ask God for great things, to heal us from all of our sins and, and our indwelling wickednesses. Do you think God can do it? Are you struggling with a, with a sin that you, you can't seem to defeat, that you can't seem to get over? God has the power to heal you. Don't think too small. 
But thankfully, God is not limited to our requests. God does tell us to ask for what we think we need, but God is not bound by our questions and and what we ask for. He is sovereign. He will ignore our requests if if he knows to give us what we really need. And so this man doesn't even ask properly, doesn't even have proper faith, and yet Jesus heals him anyway. Nor does this man really seem to deserve it, even after his healing. He seems to do his best to get Jesus into trouble. And so the feeling we are left in this chapter and after this healing is grace. Because we are all by nature like this man. We don't deserve our salvation and our healing any more than he does. We are by nature awful and ungrateful people. And yet God helps us, heals us, just like Jesus heals this man. And his words in our text are powerful. He simply commands the man, get up. And that's enough to heal him from 38 years of being unable to walk, paralyzed. And then the command that he gives next, take up your mat and walk, take up your bed and walk, shows the extent of his healing. This man doesn't, doesn't get up with wobbly legs after 38 years of unused muscles. He, he can stand up, he can walk, and he can carry his bed on his shoulders. And then John says, almost as an afterthought in verse 9, it's the Sabbath. It doesn't really matter, you see, to Jesus what day it is, but it matters to others. The Jewish leaders see this man carrying his bed on the Sabbath and they become angry. The law forbids, they say, you to take, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the Jewish day of rest. We rest on a Sunday, they rested on the Sabbath day, but it's in obedience to God's command that we must rest from our daily work for this one day in order to worship Him. Now it's important to note that it is not God's law that forbids the man from carrying his bed on the Sabbath. God's law forbids our ordinary work on the day of rest. We should not engage in our ordinary employment or our usual work or chores. Those that are not necessary for life. But the Jewish teachers had ignored this, this point of God's law. And they had stated many other things which they considered work. And which they said were therefore unlawful to do on the Sabbath. For example, if you blew out your lamp on Sabbath Eve in order to save oil, you were not allowed to turn it on again. That would be work. On the other hand, if you blew out your lamp in order to sleep better, then you were allowed to turn it on again. You're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. So if you had a toothache, you were not allowed to put vinegar on it to numb the pain. But if you happen to eat vinegar during the course of a meal, then you are allowed to to accidentally heal yourself. And so the Pharisees had all sorts of laws that, that didn't really make sense. And Jesus says elsewhere that by making all of these laws, they were placing an unnecessary burden on the people's shoulders. And in a sense, they were actually breaking the Sabbath by doing so. Because when God commands us to rest, He doesn't just mean that we stop carrying heavy things around. God's command for the Sabbath day is to give us a day of physical and mental rest for our good, because we need that. But because of all these laws, God's people spent the whole Sabbath day terrified and always looking over their shoulder, wondering if they were breaking one of the Pharisees' commandments. And so they weren't really resting. 
And so the Sabbath day was to help us to rest physically and mentally. But even more important, it is actually to teach us that God is the one who's in control. And he's the one blessing our work. Sometimes we work too much because we think, if I don't, who knows what will happen. But then when the Sabbath comes and we stop working, we stop thinking about work, we stop actually working, and surprisingly, everything doesn't fall down around us. And we realize that actually we are not as necessary as we think. It is God who blesses our work and who causes us to succeed, not us. And so by adding all of these laws, the Pharisees were putting huge, unnecessary mental burdens on the people. And when we read these things and we see the Pharisees' attitude in this chapter, we shake our heads. And we think, how could they have been so foolish? How could they be so unloving? But actually, it's those of us who are well established in the church, who are mature Christians, who are in danger of falling into their sin. All these Sabbath laws, they they sound foolish to us, but they were no doubt put in place with with noble motives. Pharisees thought, well, how can we make sure that people do no work and, and make sure that they keep God's commandments? And so they listed everything that could possibly be considered work and said, if you just avoid all of these things, you know for sure that you're keeping God's law. Noble motives. But they ended up doing the opposite of what they intended. And we can sometimes do the same thing when we bind other people or even ourselves to extra scriptural rules and regulations. And so, we do not need to bind ourselves or others to extra rules regarding the Sunday. But the same thing goes for the rest of our life. We all have our own preferences for the way that we do worship or the way that we run our families or the way that we parent our children. And again, most of these rules are fine. And most rules that we have in our families or in our lives, they they have good reasons behind them at some point. But we have to be careful that we're not forcing ourselves or other people to, to follow rules that are not in Scripture. Or we're not looking down on other people who do not parent exactly the same as us. Or who do not worship exactly the way that we do. When the way that we do it is not exactly prescribed in Scripture. We're called to hold tightly to the commands of God and and much less tightly to human traditions. And as we see in our chapter, when we start holding tightly to human traditions, even when they started with good motives, we actually end up doing the opposite of what we want. We actually end up causing people to suffer. And it also promotes unbiblical pride when we think our way is best. And how much better we are than anyone else who does it differently. And so the Pharisees are obviously very wrong here. But the man, he does not defend himself along any of these lines. He's very quick to pass the blame away from himself and and onto Jesus. And he says, the man who healed me, that man said to me that I have to do it. And in this sense, he also reminds us a bit of ourselves. And when we are caught in a sin or in some embarrassing situation, we're very often quick to pass the the blame onto someone else. Someone else told me to do it. It wasn't my fault. I'm I'm tired and, and exhausted. I couldn't help it. And the Jews, they respond, as we see very clearly, with a, a complete lack of, of care towards his healing. The man Notice talks about the man who healed me in in verse 11. His focus 
is, is that he's been healed. He was 38 years paralyzed, and now he can walk. So the man who healed me, he says, that man said, take up your bed and walk. But the Jews focus is not at all on his healing, only on the fact that he's carrying his bed. They say, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And so we see here that the hardness of, of their hearts. And then there are chapters, skips ahead a bit, and so Jesus later finds him at the temple. And the man here, as we can assume, is still walking around. And Jesus says to him, see, you are well. Here, this it shows that Jesus' healing is, is permanent. His healing is, is true healing. It's not some sort of trick or, or fakery. But Jesus continues, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And this is a fascinating verse because it seems to contradict other verses in Scripture. Where Jesus declare, where it is declared that there is no connection between suffering and sin. John chapter 9 verse 3, for example, a few pages on. Jesus talks about a man born blind. And when his disciples ask, is it because of his, his sin or his parents' sin that he is blind? Jesus says, neither. Neither sin. But his blindness happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And so many people have been careful to downplay our text and to say there is no real connection between sickness and sin. Jesus is just talking in a general sense that, that all sickness and all trouble come as a result of the fallenness of this world. But Jesus' words are much more specific than that. He's talking specifically to the man. And he says, you sin no more, lest something worse may happen to you. And so Jesus is tying the man's disability, his 38 years of paralysis, to his sin. And he's warning him that if he continues sinning, repeats the same sin or, or other sins, a worse punishment will come upon him. And so in, in this case, Jesus is tying this man's illness to his sin. That's not always the case, as we saw from chapter 9. And, and Job is the classic example of the, of the opposite where suffering comes upon someone who did not deserve it because of their sin. And so it's not always the case, but our chapter is the example where it is sometimes the case that suffering and sin are related. And in fact, they often are. God has made it that sin always has negative consequences. And so continued or unrepentant sin will basically always bring some sort of suffering in your life. And sometimes the link between suffering and sin is, is obvious. If you have an affair, you will obviously face marriage trouble, perhaps even divorce. A lifetime of smoking might bring lung cancer. Uh, using marijuana might cause you to have a deteriorated mind, and the same is true for other drug abuse. If you treat your children harshly or neglect them when they are young, they probably won't be particularly kind and devoted to you when you are old. But sometimes the connection between sin and sickness is a whole lot less obvious. In 1 Corinthians 11, for example, those who despoiled the Lord's Supper were sick or dying. In Hebrews chapter 12, Christians who were tempted to deny the faith were suffering worldly persecution as a result of the Lord's discipline. This man's sin, we're not told what sin it is, led to his legs 
not working anymore. There's no obvious connection between these sins and, or these sufferings and the sin that brought them on. And yet God says that they are related. And so the point is that any suffering can perhaps be the result of the Lord disciplining us for serious or unrepentant sin. And the link might not always be so obvious. And so whenever you are sick or suffering, you ought to ask yourself, is there unconfessed sin in my life that the Lord is disciplining me for? As we see in our text, there are times when physical sickness or disability is the result of unconfessed sin. And we'll sing about that later in, in Psalm 32. And David gives an example of how he didn't repent of his sin. And he talked about how his bones were weak and his strength became weak. So there can be a, a physical suffering because of sin. And there can also be mental difficulties because of sin. Often when we have unrepented or sinful habits, it causes us mental stress and strength. And so when we suffer, we ought to search our life and to ask ourselves, is there sin in my life that I have not confessed? That God is calling me to repentance. And we ought to pray for the help of God's Spirit to search our heart and to reveal if there is any wicked way in us. And in Hebrews chapter 12, God says, God promises, in fact, that when we sin and do not repent, He will discipline us. And He tells us that, yes, discipline is painful at the time. None of us enjoy suffering. But He says that later we will rejoice and thank God because He will use that suffering to bring us to repentance and to bring us back close to Him. Now, as I've already mentioned, not all suffering is because of sin. And so many times in our life when we suffer and we ask this question, is God calling me to repentance? Do I have some sort of sin in my life? The answer may well be no. And in that case, we can be thankful for God's promises and the promises of Scripture that God will bring good out of all suffering that we face. If we are sinning and God brings suffering as discipline, He will use it for our good to bring us to repentance. If we suffer not because of any of our sin, as the Bible says, God will use our suffering to strengthen us, to work in us patience and perseverance. And so, brothers and sisters, are you suffering? If so, have you asked that question of yourself? Do I need to stop sinning lest something worse may happen to me? What does Jesus mean by something worse? He means, of course, eternal punishment. On the last day, all those who have not repented of their sins in this life will be cast into the fires of hell and suffer burning torment forever. And so suffering, though it is, or, or God's discipline, though it is painful at the time, is actually an act of God's mercy and love. Because no matter how awful our, our suffering is that God brings upon us in this life, it is nothing compared to the suffering that unrepentant sinners will face in the next life. And so Jesus, even this man's 38 years of paralysis was a mercy. And now Jesus gives him the warning. He has a second chance. Stop sinning, lest something worse may happen to you. And the same is true of any of us. Each time we sin and, and God causes discipline upon us, we have the chance to repent. To stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen to us. 
This man, though, as soon as he knows who Jesus is, he immediately goes to the Jews and tells them that it was Jesus who had healed him. It's hard to tell whether he did so out of, out of naivety or vindictiveness. Perhaps it is because it, out of spite, because Jesus had come and, and told him off and accused him of sin and, and called him to repent. And we're probably familiar with that scenario when other people accuse us of sin. Our first, our first response is usually anger. Often we, we hardly try to find some sort of sin that they have committed so we can turn the tables back on them and lessen some of the shame that we feel. The man, of course, couldn't do that because Jesus had never committed any sin and so he went and informed upon him to the Jewish leaders. And so Jesus faces a lot of opposition in verse 16 and following. The Jews, it says, were persecuting Jesus. And there's a sad irony in the fact that Jesus now faces opposition for this healing. He's healed a man who is lame for 38 years. He's done what the so-called magical pool of Bethesda could not do. And the Jews' response is to persecute him because he'd done it on the Sabbath. We see again here that the outflow of unmerciful, unloving hearts. They don't care about the, the good and the love that Jesus has shown. They, they only care that he has broken their human traditions to do so. And Jesus, keep in mind, has not just healed a, a man with, with unworking legs. In those days, being lame like this meant a life of abject poverty and, and begging and unsanitary conditions. Those with special needs were not considered full members of society in those days. They were outcasts, thought to be under God's punishment. And so Jews, pious Jews, would shun them. And so now Jesus has not just restored this man to full health. He's restored him to be a fully functioning member of society. And yet they don't care. Their hearts are hard. And so it's a warning to us to make sure that our hearts are filled with love for God and for our neighbor. The right response, of course, would have been to praise God and, and thank him for this man's healing and the gospel that it represents. God, God's gracious love towards sinners. Because we see in this chapter that, that God in Jesus seeks out not the best of people, not the most likable people, not the ones with the greatest faith. This man had a very weak faith in, in Jesus' ability to help him. And then even after Jesus helped him, he, he turns him in to the Jewish leaders. But it is in God's good pleasure that God often chooses those who are difficult. And as the scriptures also say, those who are, are nothing in the eyes of people. And in Jesus Christ, he heals us and he saves us from our sins so that nothing worse may happen to us. And so that is the gospel in our text. When Jesus says, stop sitting, that nothing worse may happen to you, what he means is that this man needs to put his faith in Jesus Christ. He needs to acknowledge that he has sinned. He needs to repent of his sin. And he needs to find forgiveness in the blood that Jesus Christ will soon shed on the cross. And so the healing of this man is a picture of the gospel also for us. And so, brothers and sisters, what kind of person are you? Maybe like Pharisees, you consider yourself a, a pretty decent person. You're an upstanding member of the church. You give your tithe. You do your best to keep God's commandments. Or maybe like this man, you're well aware that you're not well considered in the eyes of society. 
Or perhaps you know that you're not a good person. Maybe other people resent you and, and put you down. Maybe other people shun you. Or maybe you have committed truly terrible sins that have driven others around you away and have hurt those close to you. Whatever person you think you are, the truth is that by nature you are like this man. Your sin makes you dirty and offensive and unlovable. And you repel those around you. That's true of all of us before we know Jesus. But at times it still remains true of us today as we struggle against the sinful nature that remains in us. And we commit sins that show we are still selfish and proud and hypocritical and mean at times. And so we learn that God does not choose us because we are better than anyone else. Nor does he love us today because of anything that we have done. Because we have not done anything. A lifetime of faithful service. After all of that, you are just an unworthy servant. And so God chooses us and loves us only because of his grace. Simply because he chose to. Undeserving on our part. And that is what the the Jews could not see. They thought that they were pretty good. They thought that they deserved God's love because they made all of these laws and they did their best to keep them. Now, we see Jesus' response to them. He could have given them some sort of large argument as to why their laws were were man-made and did not really apply. But he actually defends himself on other grounds. He talks about how God continues to work on the Sabbath. And so he is allowed to work. And Jewish rabbis agreed that if God were to stop working, then he would no longer be upholding the world and and everything would cease to exist. And so God has to keep working. And so Jesus' point is that because God works, he, as God's one and only son, is also allowed to keep working. And so he here is claiming divinity for himself. And the Jews didn't miss his implication. And so they were persecuting him. And his implication is a serious claim here. Either Jesus, a human man, is God, or he has committed the crime of blasphemy, and he deserves death. The Jewish leaders chose the latter option, and so they persecuted him and sought to kill him. And today the Holy Spirit then asks us the same question. We have seen who we are by nature, unlovable, sinful, hurting those around us. But who is Jesus? Do you believe his claim? Do you acknowledge that he truly is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Do you acknowledge that though you are unworthy, God saves you by his grace? Then that Jesus is your Savior. The actions of Jesus in our chapter prove that his claim is true. If the Jews had stopped for a moment to consider it. If he can heal a man 38 years paralyzed, he certainly has divine power working in him. And so when we believe in Jesus, he will heal us too. One day, after, uh, in the next life, if not in this life, God will heal us of all of our sicknesses and all of our sufferings. But above all, he will heal us from what is much worse. He will heal us from all of our sin and take away eternal punishment forever. Believe in Jesus Christ and all of your sins are washed away. And you will be God's child, safe in his care forever. Amen. Let's now sing in response Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2.
Let us now come before the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, our gracious Father in heaven, you have reminded us this morning from your word what we are like by nature, how we are unlovable, how we are proud and selfish, how we are mean and, and hurt those around us by our anger, by our, our wickedness and all of our sins, and how despite all, uh, despite what we are really like, you in your grace, you come to us with the gospel of salvation. And we have seen how Jesus freely offers healing to this man, even though he certainly did, did not deserve it, did not even truly, properly ask for it beforehand. And so we thank you that when we are unlovable and lost in our sins, you come to us and you heal us and you help us. But as we have seen, you also now then call us to sin no more. And so we pray that you will help us not uh, to put away the sins in our life, the sinful habits that we have developed, the, the indwelling sins that seem to be part of our character, that, that sometimes we are tempted to just shrug away by saying everyone is, is human. Lord, will you help us to fight against all of our sins? out of thankfulness to you for our salvation through Christ, out of faithfulness to you. And Lord, we have also seen how sometimes when we sin, when we do not repent and when we continue in our sin, you bring upon us suffering as discipline in order to bring us back to you. And we know, Lord, that this is not pleasant. No discipline ever is. And yet you discipline us, you bring us this suffering out of love. To bring us to repentance. And so when we suffer, if perhaps we are suffering now, will you help us to truly ask the question, is there unrepentant sin in my life? Do I need to repent, to sin no more? And if so, will you bring us to repentance so that we will fight against our sin, not just feel sorry for what we have done, but that we will truly hate our sin and flee from it. And instead of sin, turn towards you. But Lord, we know that there are also many of us who suffer and it is not because of our sin. And so in this case, Lord, we pray that you help us not to despair because of sin. Not to think that our sin is necessarily because of your punishment and your discipline. But instead to remember that you have promised that also you bring sin upon us to strengthen you bring suffering upon us to strengthen our faith. That you will use our suffering to work patience and endurance and perseverance as we wait for the time when one day we will finally be delivered from all sickness, from all suffering, and also, once and for all, from all of our indwelling sins. And we thank you that while we wait, we have the comfort of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That when we have repented of our sins, we are washed clean from our sins in the blood of Christ. Not just the, the sins 
that we have seen and that we are sorry for, but even the, the sins, Lord, that are hidden from us. As we also learn from your word, we pray that you will wash us clean from our willful sins and also our hidden sins so that we will be blameless in your sight. Not because we have earned blamelessness by our righteousness and our good Christian behavior, but only because the blood of Christ is able to completely cleanse us so that we are indeed washed clean in your sight and that we are righteous in the name of Christ. And so we hope us then, Lord, to have this true faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and this faith, too, we acknowledge, has not come from ourselves, but it's worked in us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you will bless all those who are suffering in our midst. We also help us as brothers and sisters to, to look out for those who are suffering, to speak words of comfort to them, to be, a, to be an encouragement, to give them all the, the help that they need. And will you also help us, Lord, to look out for those who are sinning so that we will see, if we see a, a sinner, that we will warn them of the error of their ways and therefore save a sinner from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so will you help us not to be so, so shy or, or nervous to, to s confront those who are sinning, but to know that when we do so, we, are your, we can be your agent of bringing, for bringing them to repentance. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll help us and as a congregation to, in, in these various ways to look out for one another, to build one another up, also to pray for one another, an important part, so that uh, by confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other, we may be healed. We also look forward, Lord, to the time when our Lord Jesus Christ will return and all of our suffering and all of our sins will be gone forever and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Until then, Lord, will you bless us with patience and endurance to face the difficulties and the sufferings, but also the blessings and the, uh, the wonderful things that you give us in this life. And so all of this, then, we pray of you, knowing that you will hear our prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone. Amen. The deacons will now come to collect your offerings of thankfulness this morning. The offerings are for the ministry of mercy. And then afterwards, we'll sing as our closing song, the psalm of, of David, when he at first refused to confess his sins and the, the sufferings that it brought upon him, but then also the joy that he faced when he did confess his sins and was forgiven. And so we'll sing Psalm 32, stanzas 1, 2, and 3, after the offering for the ministry of mercy.
receive now the blessing of our triune God and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.